0: The bad news about the cost and the supply of energy for the winter months ahead just keeps coming. And it keeps getting worse.
1: With prices climbing and a recent report that up to 70% of households could be plunged into energy poverty in worst case scenarios. Russia saying the gas supplies to Europe via the Nord Stream 1 pipeline will not resume in full.
0: Energy has moved from being a bit of a fringe issue to being the single biggest problem facing the government, says political reporter Jack Horgan-Jones. But
1: no matter what they do, it is unlikely to be enough to totally absorb the costs that accrue to households across this winter.
0: As if that wasn't bad enough.
2: Blackouts are more likely than they have been for a long time.
0: Energy expert with the ESRI, Dr. Moran Lynch, says that even with no war in Ukraine, Ireland would still be facing a supply crisis, potentially at a very inconvenient moment.
2: The peak demand for the whole system tends to be on Christmas Eve, usually, at about uh, six o'clock in the evening. But
0: why are we facing blackouts now? Are the costs and the supply problems linked? And what's our way out of all this? This is In The News from The Irish Times. I'm Conor Pope. Today, I talk to Jack Organ jones and Dr Murrin Lynch about Ireland's energy crisis and what we might do next. Jack on multiple occasions over recent months, the government has taken steps to help tackle the cost of living crisis. So first we saw there was a 20 cent cut in the excise duty on motor fuel. And then there was a 100 euro rebate on domestic energy, which became a 200 euro rebate on domestic energy. So after the budget, people are inevitably going to be saying, well, what has it done for us? So what further steps can the government take to offset the worst of the cost of living crisis that we're all going to be facing into this winter?
1: I think you're right. Every budget or at least every good budget that kind of moves the political barometer has a theme attached to it. And I think that early and often and earlier than usual this year, because the budget is coming in September rather than October, the theme of this budget has emerged as to how are you going to help households? And I suppose the, the, the suite of options that the government has available to us range from those that we know about already, so the kind of interventions that you uh, talked us through there that we saw earlier on in the summer, to fairly substantial reorganization of the electricity market or fairly dramatic interventions uh, in the shape of a cap on energy prices or a windfall tax. An associated question is to what extent is it easy or simple or practicable to uh, push ahead with those really large and complex policy interventions in the short term because obviously we have coming up as I said already earlier than usual the budget in 21 days time as we record this and the convention in Ireland is that you only make a big taxation intervention so if they were for example to favor a windfall tax that you only really make that on budget day and that any other intervention on tax is usually uh, depicted or construed at least by the opposition as an emergency budget measure, which never looks good for the government. So, It's a complex picture to try and imagine how they would get their house in order effectively in the next 21 days to design one of these really complicated, um, massive interventions. And to further muddy those waters, we now have kind of parallel processes going on, whereby the officials in Ireland and in Dublin have been studying perhaps how one of these interventions, a price cap or windfall tax, might work on a domestic level. But in the last week or 10 days, uh, the European Commission has said that it wants wants to make a really substantial intervention on the structure of the energy market and potentially decouple the link between the price of gas and the wholesale price of electricity or introduce some kind of toolkit for member states who want to do something similar. The skyrocketing electricity prices are now exposing for different reasons the limitations of
0: our current electricity market design. It was developed for completely different, under completely different circumstances and completely different purposes. It is no more fit for purpose.
1: So there's a huge amount going on. There's a huge amount of, if you pardon the pun, energy being expended, trying to figure out exactly the best way to manage this crisis. And I think all that favours perhaps the government leaning into what it's done already. So I think that the most likely thing that we should expect to see in the budget and within the next kind of six to eight weeks before the winter home heating season really gets underway is more of the same. I think that the shortest odds will be on extension of the VAT uh, cuts, extension of the excise cuts that we saw during the spring. Probably another large-scale energy uh, rebate, although it's not as politically straightforward to push ahead with that. There will potentially be some blowback because that accrues to millionaires and billionaires and second homeowners and all the rest of it. But it is a good measure when you want to you know, help households across the board. And also there will be, I would presume, uh, both some targeted and across the board and both temporary and permanent increases in welfare payments to help people through the winter.
0: And it does seem like the government has this constantly inflating pot of money that they can use does that at least give them significant wiggle room when it comes to introducing measures that will make life better for most people?
1: It gives them firepower, all right. Yeah. So the the source of this this money, with uh, the anticipated six billion plus um, excess in the exchequer figures this year, is the afterburners of corporation tax that have been uh, roaring for years now. And and so there is both a political imperative to um, spend this money, which they will do to a meaningful extent through one-off measures. And uh, an economic and a prudential imperative not to spend it. And every economist and every advisor and every advisory body that was set up in the wake of the last crash uh, to, to tell the government what to do and how to manage the finances is saying, do not spend this money, particularly don't spend it in a way that builds into the base uh, into into money that you have to spend every year. So don't spend it on things like public pay increases. They're probably less hostile to the idea of spending it on one-off measures, like an energy rebate, because it's kind of, you know, one and you're done, or at least in the case of Ireland at this stage you now, it's two and you're done. But like, it's something that is not necessarily recurring. It's something that is not necessarily inflationary because it probably doesn't encourage extra consumption. It just enables people to alleviate the impact of of costs on the household. So I think that there will be less hostility to, to that. And therefore, you know, that's where I would expect to see um, more latitude available for the coalition in terms of actually spending those windfall taxes. But we should also expect that, uh, particularly given um, Pruden Pascal in the Department of Finance, we should expect that there will be a push on to put some of that money as well into the dearly departed Rainy Day Fund, which we haven't funded in the last couple of years and, and expects and is in fact is legislated for a 500 million contribution this year and next.
0: Irish families are going to have to make some tough decisions this winter. They're going to have to decide how much of their money they set aside for their energy bills, their their gas bills, their electricity bills, and how much they set aside for normal living expenses. How difficult are those decisions going to be, do you think? And what are people likely to decide to do?
1: They're very difficult. And I think that there may be we may find that there's a ceiling on what people will tolerate. You know, um, people will not, I think, accept uh, a situation where there is a crisis and they feel that they're being asked to shoulder more than their fair share of the burden. Uh, electricity bills, energy bills have already shot up and are already putting uh, households under enormous pressure. Um, there will be help coming. Uh, there will be policy interventions that are designed to defray that. But if energy bills persist at this level across winter it it wouldn't surprise me to be honest if we see uh, a greater degree of arrears building up in the kind of the overall energy bills across the country uh, as people make that choice and decide to you know perhaps cancel the direct debit and you know will people feel that they should sacrifice their children's Christmas presents or a warm house over Christmas just in order to pay a bill which they feel is the consequence of factors outside of their control and hasn't been adequately controlled um, or defrayed by the powers that be. I suspect that a significant proportion, I don't know how big or how small, but uh, would just, just just cancel the direct debit, I, I presume.
2: That it can't give a cast iron guarantee that there won't be blackouts in the electricity system this winter. It cited the gap between supply and demand and a tighter energy market across Europe as reason.
0: But the reality is the blackouts and the energy crisis, which has been caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, are not linked at all. And in fact, the blackouts are probably a sign of a systemic failure over many years. But the government has. Implicitly, if not explicitly, been linking blackouts and the war in Ukraine, hasn't it?
1: It has, and and far be for me to question the motives of uh, politicians, which of course are always as pure as the driven snow. But you know, the <laughs> the, the 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 existence of an extraneous factor, uh, a dramatic one that clearly is affecting energy markets, i.e., the Russian invasion of Ukraine, does provide convenient cover for uh, the the mainstream political parties and the associated market regulators and market participants for their failure over a period of a decade or more to really grapple with the uh, systemic issues that are affecting uh, energy provision in Ireland. Now, I think in fairness, it it would be wrong to not to acknowledge the fact that, you know, I think even Ryan at an Arctis committee last week was explicitly acknowledging, you know, that the... uh, the energy security problem is composed of separate but interrelated parts, some of which are Irish and some of which are are imported. And he did uh, acknowledge that, you know, that, that, that there is, I suppose, an accrued fa- failure on, on behalf of, of the state here. But I think that if there is energy curtailment in a meaningful way uh, that impacts households over the winter, I think that even that excuse, you know, blame the Russians, will ring extremely hollow. And the the, the the there will be a vengeance from the, the electorate. You know, it'll be a plague on, on all their houses. And no one will really bother uh, caring, you know, who exactly is, is, is responsible. But they'll know exactly who they uh, will blame. And it will be uh, the coalition, not Vladimir Putin.
0: Jack, as ever, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. Coming up, if Vladimir Putin isn't to blame for our energy shortages... Who is? If our gas and electricity bills give us a rude awakening this winter, so too could electricity blackouts. As the nights get darker and colder, the power supply that we take for granted simply might not hold up. It is tight and you can't be absolutely certain, but we, um, we expect to be able to manage it. That was Minister Eamon Ryan speaking in 2021, before last winter. So this isn't a new problem. But why couldn't we fix it on time? I talked to Moran Lynch, an energy expert and senior research officer with the Economic and Social Research Institute. Moran, there's been a lot of talk in recent times about blackouts as we head into the winter. Why is the reason they'd be more likely now than they were, say, this time last year or in 2020?
2: So what's happening is in the Irish market, we have what's called a capacity market. And this is where generators get a specific payment in return for a sort of a promise to be available to generate electricity at a certain price. And there were contracts signed four years ago and three years ago where various generators won a contract in in return for this promise to be here this winter. And some of them haven't shown up. Now, in response to that, uh, Airgrid attempted to procure some emergency generators and they were supposed to be in place for this winter. Unfortunately, they have not shown up either for various reasons. So what that means now is we're facing into this winter with what's called a capacity shortfall. So that means that we don't have enough coal and gas and battery generators on the system to meet our peak demand. To answer the question, how likely are blackouts? That really depends because if we get enough wind generation at our peak demand, then we might be okay. okay. We might be able to overcome that d- gap between conventional supply and electricity demand with wind. However, if we have our peak demand coinciding with a low wind period or maybe with our interconnectors to Great Britain on outage or something like that, then in that instance, we may well need to shed demand in order to balance the demand and the supply.
0: If all of these contracts that had been agreed and signed four years ago, had been honoured. Does that mean that we would have a greater supply and we wouldn't be as vulnerable to the price hikes that we're seeing in Ireland right now?
2: We certainly would have greater supply and the question of blackouts I don't think would be on the table. Whether or not we would be as exposed to the price hikes is harder to say because of the particular mechanisms around um, these contracts, I think we would probably be facing the high prices regardless because the prices are driven by gas prices um, and and there's no getting away from that, even if you have lots and lots of units on the system because the units that didn't deliver were primarily gas units anyway. It's not like we would have had a whole load of nuclear units or coal units or biomass units that didn't show up. Is
0: there anything that we could have done differently in recent years to ensure that we had a greater degree of energy security today? Or to put that in a a different way, what mistakes have been made over recent times that have made blackouts more likely now?
2: In terms of the blackouts, I think potentially we had too low of a barrier to entry. So there were not many regulations in place in order to be able to get a capacity contract. You could get one without having planning permission or without having cleared all the regulations, for example. Now, you did have four years to get planning permission and all the rest of it. But if you didn't succeed, then that meant you weren't able to show up and generate. And that seems to be what has happened for at least some of the units.
0: Okay. So just hang on, just to be clear, are you saying that companies were able to bid for contracts to supply us with energy without having any of the infrastructure in place That was required to supply us with that energy.
2: Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say without having any of the infrastructure in place. You did have to, you did have to put up a bond and that kind of thing. And we should note here as well that the generators that didn't show up have had to pay a penalty. Mm. But you know, it's, it's no good having cash in your pocket when what you, what you want is power. The rationale was that if we were too stringent and if we said you have to have your plan permission, you have to have your grid connection, you have to have all of the environmental hurdles cleared, then that would have meant that there was hardly any people bidding for these contracts, which would have resulted in the consumer paying a very, very high price. So the flip side of this is that capacity prices actually were very low for those auctions compared to historically. So consumers, I suppose, saved money on that, but now we're paying the price for it in terms of potential blackouts this winter. Okay other things we could have maybe done. One of the hallmarks of the last crash was that we cut capital spending much more than we cut current spending. So I suppose the reason for that was because the government felt that people would get more upset at a fiver being taken off the pension than they would at a few roads not being built. And maybe they were right about that. But what it meant was that we really had a lost decade there where we weren't investing in our housing stock, where we could have been building new homes that were more energy efficient. And also we could have been retrofitting our existing homes. So if you look across Europe, Ireland is a real laggard when it comes to renewable heat. We still get an awful lot of our heat from oil and from gas. And I think maybe what we could have done is we could have prioritised investment in our housing stock, although that would have meant very, very difficult choices, even more difficult than the ones the government made at the time. So I can understand why that wasn't necessarily followed.
0: If the problem is a lack of energy generators,
2: why don't we just build more of them? Well, we certainly tried. Um, Airgrid tried to procure emergency generators for this winter um, and there was a legal challenge to that, I believe. Um, and then they tried again and they had trouble meeting the environmental standards. So even under an emergency situation where I believe the planning requirements weren't as stringent, they just didn't get them built in time for this winter. What we have done is we have changed legislation to make it easier for Airgrid to kind of directly procure generation going forward. But certainly some of the planning requirements in particular seem to be very stringent. On board Panola has an eighteen week turnaround target for decisions on these infrastructural strategic infrastructural units are called. So something like a wind farm would fall into that category. However, I'm not aware of any project that has been turned around within eighteen weeks. So they've never once met their target, and some projects take over a year. And that's not just including the judicial reviews, because pretty much everything goes to judicial review, even just for on board Planola to make their initial decision is taking way longer than the 18 weeks. So it seems that there is a good bit of work that could be done on the planning side to speed these things up. And if we're serious about hitting these offshore wind targets in particular, that's just going to have to happen. And the same is true, as I said, for the transmission and the wires and the substations and all of that infrastructure that's required to support this investment in renewables and indeed in conventional generation.
0: Potentially, how much wind power could we generate using these offshore wind farms around Ireland?
2: Well, if you look at the potential of the actual. Sea that belongs to Ireland, if I can put it that way, there could be seventy or eighty gigawatts. So that's more than ten times our entire electricity requirement. Uh, However, the real bottleneck, if you can put it that way, is the grid connection. So there's no good putting a load of wind turbines out in the sea if there's no way to connect them onto the grid. Now, some people are even talking in terms of putting. Hydrogen electrolyzers out at sea as well.
0: I don't know what a hydro electrolyzer is, Marin. Can you tell me
2: what it is? Yeah. So, what this means is you use electricity generated by wind to make hydrogen. So, you take some water and you run an electric current through it, which splits the water into hydrogen and oxygen. Hmm. Um, And then you've got that hydrogen as a kind of a a liquid or a gas, depending on what pressure you put it at. And you can use that to power trucks. You can use that to put into your gas system and that kind of thing. Yeah, of course. So, this, this problem of transmission is so bad that some people are actually saying you know what I might be better off forgetting about connecting my wind farm to the grid and instead put an electrolyzer next to my wind farm my wind farm just uses I just use the electricity from my wind farm to turn a load of water into hydrogen and then I can just drive my hydrogen around the place (laughs) and deliver it to wherever it's needed Mm. now that seems to me to be a very expensive solution to this problem I think what we really need to do is get our act together and figure out how to get the transmission infrastructure in place. But let's be realistic here. I think the target for 2030 is something like five gigawatts of offshore wind. Even that five gigawatt target is going to be unbelievably challenging. We've only we've got less than eight years left until 2030. I don't know how the hell we're going to do it at the rate we're going.
0: If we'd been better at harnessing the wind power, Offshore, and if we'd been better at building these power generators on the island of Ireland, could we be sidestepping the worst of the energy crisis that the worst that the the rest of Europe is facing today?
2: We probably wouldn't have been able to avoid the fallout. In order to completely sidestep the effects of Ukraine, it wouldn't be enough to just have an awful lot of wind. We'd also need a huge amount of either batteries or hydrogen to back it up. And we just haven't been there with the battery and the hydrogen technology for long enough in order to have enabled us to invest enough to avoid the worst of the crisis. However, it's certainly the case that if we had gotten our reliance on fossil fuels down to at least some extent, like anything would have helped. We are one of the most reliant countries on fossil fuel across Europe. Part of that is just geography. We don't have the kind of hydro resources that they have in the likes of Finland and Switzerland and even France. It's harder to harness wind energy than it is to harness hydro. And we've we've harnessed all the hydro that we can. But part of it is also just these things have been very, very slow. For whatever reason, it takes an awfully, long time to get energy infrastructure built in Ireland. It seems to take an awful long time to get infrastructure built in general in Ireland. And certainly if we'd been able to speed that up a bit in the past, we'd be in a better position than we're in right now.
0: Best case scenario, worst case scenario, how likely are blackouts in this country? And what are the determining factors that will make those blackouts more or less likely?
2: Blackouts are more likely than they have been for a long time. That's the most I can say. It's really hard to put a number on it because you can only ever put a probabilistic number on it. And that depends on so many things. The things that would make it more or less likely are some things that are outside of our control. So first of all, uh, will the wind blow? Um, Will the wind blow when we want it to blow? And will our interconnectors to Great Britain hold up? Um, We can't do anything about that. However, other things that we can do is trying to reduce our demand at peak times. So this is between five and seven o'clock in the evening in the winter. The peak demand for the whole system tends to be on Christmas Eve, usually at about uh, six o'clock in the evening. So if there's anything people can do to maybe, fair enough, make your cup of tea, make the dinner, obviously no one expects you to go hungry, but maybe wait until after seven o'clock to turn the dishwasher on or the tumble dryer, or ideally wait until after 11 o'clock at night if you can. These kind of things can actually make a big difference, especially on a small system like Ireland. If everybody was to reduce their peak usage just by a few percent, we might actually avoid a blackout that would otherwise happen.
0: Okay. And I'd like to finish on an upbeat note because, you know, like people need a bit of cheering and there isn't that much optimism around now. So I just wonder if one of the positives that's coming out of the current crisis is the spiralling cost of fossil fuels, particularly gas, could see more people and more policymakers becoming more aggressive or proactive when rolling out renewable energy alternatives. And do you think that's a possibility at least?
2: Yeah, I think if from a homeowner's perspective, if you look at the payback times on things like a home energy retrofit or the installation of a heat pump or solar panels, The fact that fossil fuel prices have gone so high means that the payback times on those have come way down. So before you would have been talking kind of five to 15 years to make money back on your solar panels, depending on your usage and on how much you were paying, whereas now that's come way down because electricity prices have gone so high. So if you were kind of looking a year or two ago at doing a deep energy retrofit and you just decided it wasn't worth it, now is a good time to look again. And I would say, unfortunately, looking to the future, Connor, you know, policymakers are talking about getting off Russian fossil fuels altogether, regardless of what happens in Ukraine. So I can't promise that fossil fuel prices are going to come down anytime soon. So I do think as a long run investment, it's a good idea as well.
0: Dr. Murin Lynch, thank you very much for talking to us. That's it for today. This episode of In The News was produced by Declan Conlon and Suzanne Brennan. We'll be back on Friday.